sound like you were rushing or something. <laughs> You're fine. Everything's fine. We're not in a rush, not in a hurry, are we? I'll hurry. Don't worry. Uh, that's the last thing you want to hear when the preacher gets up and says, we're not in a rush. We're not in a hurry. And everyone's like, oh, no, the crock pot. Uh, so uh, good morning, everybody. So did you know that uh, based on recent surveys, uh, it, it indicates that 77% of Americans report anxiety over their financial situation? So that's the majority of us as Americans, 77% of us, anxiety over, over finances. 58%, and that's still a, a majority, feel that finances control their lives, that everything that they do is somehow related to their financial situation. And the major concerns are retirement, cost of living, and managing debt in that order. And they have the percentages for all of that. So according to the report, it says the impact financial stress has on Americans stretches into all aspects of life with respondents saying they feel fatigued. They find it difficult to concentrate at work and have trouble sleeping. And a quarter of the respondents said financial stress affects their relationship. Relationships, plural. (laughs) So so this is, this is far reaching. This is, uh, this is actually not a very encouraging report, really, when you think about it. Uh, but, but it, yeah, you're welcome. You can go. No, uh, it, it is part of the patterns of this world that we live in. And it's not just, you know, we've identified Americans because that's where we live. But it's not just, you know, it's not Americans. This has been going on and, and goes on all the time. This is just part of the human condition. This is what it is to, you know, this is nothing new. And, and, and. The thing is, Jesus has actually called us to live in a different sphere than that. He, he's called us to live in God's sphere, the kingdom, the kingdom life. And he contrasts it with the worry-filled life of this broken world in the text that we're going to be reading today. We're continuing in our study in the Gospel of Luke. And if you've got a Bible or a Bible app with you, you'd like to follow along, which I highly recommend doing, uh, go to Luke chapter 12, please. Last week, uh, Janelle joined me. Did she leave? Where is she? Oh, there she is. You know, and I never look over there. Uh, she joined me last week, and we, we uh, dove into this parable uh, that Jesus told about the foolish rich man who found his sense of security and how many possessions that, uh, and provisions that he had saved up. And we considered the warning that Jesus gave about greed and the effect that money and possessions can have on the human heart. The bottom line takeaway last week was that was just an encouragement for us to find our security in an eternal God, not in temporal stuff, not in money or provisions or possessions. But of course, then that leads right into this week's text, because that sort of statement can easily inspire some questions in us, sort of like, you know, but but how can I know? that God's going to take care of me. You know, that seems like risky business to be trusting in God. That's a scary proposition, and it is. No one's denying that. That, that is, is a reality. But this is what Jesus is going to address. Because the underlying anxiety and fear that often motivates a focus on money and provision uh, is something that needs to be encountered and examined in our lives. And Jesus is going to encourage us with some reasons for why we can let go of that fear by trusting in God 
We're going to look at some of those reasons that Jesus gives us in this. So if you're there in Luke chapter 12, we're going to pick up where we left off, starting with verse 22. It says, then he turned to his disciples and again, take note of the fact that Luke is always identifying who it is that's being addressed in this. So Jesus turning to his disciples. So that's us. This includes us. It's not just those 12 that were there, but that's all of us who have committed our lives to Christ and are following him. And he said, that is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. Whether you have enough food to eat or enough clothes to wear, for life is more than food and your body more than clothing. So Jesus begins with this call not to worry. Uh, And that's the basic theme of this whole section that we're going to be looking at. And I'll be honest, as someone who himself has a propensity towards anxiety at time, the last thing in the world that's helpful to me when I'm worrying is for someone to say, stop worrying. Uh, You know, off the cuff, hey, don't worry. Oh, really? Thank you very much. That's, That's so helpful. I hadn't thought of that. Here's the thing. My point of view, I just, nobody intentionally worries. I don't think. Maybe people can work themselves up into something to worry about. I know I've been guilty of that, but I would think that it would be really rare to find someone who is intentionally sitting out to worry about something like, you know, I'm so bored. I guess I'll worry about something right now. To me, it just doesn't work like that. Usually worry is something that a person doesn't feel they have control over. Uh, uh, And so when someone says, just don't do it, that command is not necessarily very helpful. In fact, it can even compound the situation. I know for myself, you know, worry is a sin. Don't worry. And so right away it's like, but I'm, I'm worried. And now I'm worried that that's a sin. And I'm worried about what God thinks about this. And it's just snowballing. The whole thing gets worse. And it's, it's not that helpful. Does anybody relate to what I'm talking about on that? Okay. So when someone stands up here, like I'm doing right now to, to, to look at this, you know, we don't, we don't want to be condemned by this. We don't want to walk away feeling worse. We want to try to figure out how to understand and be faithful to what Jesus is saying here, but really identify this and see how we can grow from, from this. So uh, let's look at what Jesus is saying here because God certainly knows us. He knows that worry isn't something we always have control over. So what do we do with this? What do we do about this? Now, in the Greek, the word for worry is merimnao meaning anxiety or being over-anxious about something. So realize this doesn't mean, when Jesus says this, it doesn't mean have no concerns at all. Some translations say take no thought. And that can be kind of confusing sometimes because it's like, you know, well, rents do. Yeah, well, I don't take thought. So I don't, you know, it doesn't work like this. So you're not saying that this is not any kind of, you know, this isn't some sort of Zen-like state of emotionlessness where we don't think about anything but God. He's talking about being taken over by anxieties so that it's a state that dominates then all aspects of life to where uh, everything becomes affected by this worry and concern that we have and listen anxiety and stress that's a broad subject and we now know there's a wide variety of causes behind that sort of anxiety past trauma chemical imbalance illness just a host of different things can affect a person to where they they have this sort of anxiety and i don't think that jesus is trying to make a broad statement about about anxiety across the board and the reason i'm saying that is because i don't want somebody who suffers from chronic anxiety to hear this and think oh well that's it jesus said cut it out so i'm going to get off my meds now i don't think that's a good idea okay just i'm just telling you that uh I, I i because as i said we know now there's a lot of factors 
that go into this. In this section, and that's what we want to focus on. In this section, Jesus is identifying a specific kind of concern or anxiety. That, that is a, a worry or a concern about basic provision, food and clothing. That's what Jesus is addressing here. It's not overall trying to deal with things that, you know, sometimes people who suffer chronic anxiety don't even have a cause behind it. They don't even know what's prompting this sort of thing. So, you know, understand we're not necessarily trying to tackle that as the broader subject, but this specifically is worrying about our provision, our life here and how we're going to be provided for. And he's making a contrast. He's setting this up to create a contrast between the values and priorities of his followers, those who belong to him, and the values and priorities of the broken world's systems that we live among. So in the last section, he was telling us to find our security in God. And here he's outlining reasons that we can do that. And his first point is that our relationship with God is the essential element of an abundant life. An essential element of life, we could put it that way. But abundant life is what he's called us to. Life and life abundantly. Our lives are more than food. Our bodies more than clothing. Those are the basic elements of survival. You know, the first tier on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. But Jesus is saying they don't constitute what matters internally or eternally. Those aren't the things that that matter in that sense. What we eat and what we wear, all the trappings of this external life that we have, it's all temporal. It's not evil, it's not bad, but it's just limited. It's very limited and it's temporal. And it's not, this is what Jesus is trying to get across, it's not who we are. If you've been around here at all, you've heard me ask this before, but who are you? There it is. There we go. Let's try it again. Who are you? I am loved by God. One more time. Who are you? And if we're loved by God, then we can trust that he's going to provide for our needs eternally. And if we're believing that he's going to, we're trusting him with our eternity, then we can trust him with what's temporal. That's Jesus's point. What's eternal is of far more consequence than what's temporal. If we're trusting him with the eternal, we certainly can trust him with the temporary. The fallen world doesn't have a knowledge or isn't founded or built around a knowledge of God's love. So they have to find their own security and sense of meaning, something manufactured to cover over the real need. And this is what's amazing to me, how often these stories all through the Bible keep echoing back to the Garden of Eden. This is, this is, it always comes back to this all the time. Like in the Garden of Eden, Jesus says that eating and dressing doesn't make a full and abundant life. And yet when we think about Adam and Eve, what was the first thing they did with that forbidden fruit? What did they do with the forbidden fruit? They ate it. And right after they fell from that place in God, what did they do after that? Yeah, they made some clothes for themselves out of fig leaves to try to cover up. They ate and clothed themselves, consuming and covering up. Those are the prime pastimes of the human race. Jesus wants to shake us out of that pattern, that pattern that's been in place ever since we tumbled out of the garden. This pattern of constantly wanting to consume, constantly wanting to adorn, to cover up whatever insecurities, whatever flaws, whatever things are going on there. He says, there's more to you than that. You're an image bearer of God. It's who, what you were made for. And 
only that reconciliation and connection with creator God is going to provide the kind of life that steers our pursuits towards the nobler stuff that we were created for. Ultimately, we can say that relationship becomes the the noblest pursuit. Relationship with God, first and foremost. That's what the Bible is revealing to us all the time. Relationship with God, first and foremost. And then that affects our relationships with our fellow human beings. Relationships all the way around are the noble pursuits for us. Those are the priorities that form an abundant life, is what Jesus is saying. And priorities that can free us from the anxieties that grip this, this broken world system. All right, well, we'll just keep reading here, verse 24. He says, look at the ravens. They beat the colts last week in overtime, and it was horrible. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's Rob's translation, sorry. <laughs> I'm looking at the ravens fans. Okay, look at the ravens. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for God feeds them, and you're far more valuable to him than any birds especially ravens, can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And if, you, if your worry can't accomplish a little thing like that, what's the use of worrying over bigger things? Look at the lilies and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all of his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for the flowers that are here today and thrown in the fire tomorrow, He will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? So Jesus points to nature to to illustrate his point about trusting God for our security. We can trust God because God continuously provides for creation of which we are a part. God's provision for creation is ongoing and continuous. And we're part of that. In Matthew's gospel, when Jesus is saying these same words, and you know, obviously this is a different point in time, so Jesus is kind of giving the same sermon, but wording it a little differently. In Matthew's gospel, when Jesus said this, he, he uses sparrows as an example. Sparrows are small, insignificant birds. They weren't of any value to humans at all, the least expensive bird you could find in the marketplace. And yet, he says, God values them. And here, Jesus pushes it just a little bit further, and he uses ravens as his example. And excuse me, but ravens were unclean birds in the law of Moses. I mean, they were scavengers. They were something that could make a person ceremonially unclean if they touched one. Jesus said, God cares for them. He didn't even like identify them as birds that, you know, you stay away from or whatever, or that God really dislikes these birds. That's why he made them unclean. No, he says God cares for them. He feeds them. He cares for all creation, bringing food from the earth and providing this amazing ecosystem, ecosystem that we have on this planet where potentially nothing gets wasted. This amazing, this amazing thing that God has created here. If God does that for birds, that the law called unclean, how much more is he going to provide for human beings made in his image? How much more is he going to provide for those ones that he endeared, uh, with, endowed with this amazing ability to, to grasp a hold of concepts of eternity and greater, and, and, and greater things? He points to the fields, the, the beautiful grass that, that covers it, you know, and how it's amazing if you've ever watched a field in the in the summertime and the wind blows through and it's like waves moving over it and and then the breathtaking beauty of wildflowers when they come up if you've ever uh 
uh, you know, seen pictures out in the desert in the, in the springtime when it blooms and it's just stunning, the, the beauty that's put on display there. Jesus says God does that. That's part of the beauty that this creation presents, that he presents through that, but it's all temporal. The, that very same grass is actually going to turn brown as it goes along and gets bundled up and is used as a starter and fuel for, for fires. If God does this stuff for, for, for just the, the ground covering, how much more is he going to provide for humans that he made in his image that he loves so much? At the end of verse 28, the, the New Living Translation, which we're using, it says, why do you have so little faith? And I'm not crazy about that translation. It's actually one word in the Greek, and it means little faith. And, and we could say, as most translations do, you of little faith, as Jesus ends this. And there are some scholars, and I'm persuaded by their reasoning, who suggest that this rebuke is also an endearing acknowledgement of our limitations and our weakness and our struggles with these things. Kind of like, you know, you don't know much, and, and, and you're really limited, and you've got just this small amount of faith, but I can help you if you'll listen to me. I can help you. He said in verse 25, can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And if your worry can't accomplish a little thing like that, what's the use of worrying over big things? A single moment, something infinitesimal, and worrying can't accomplish it. Reminding us that anxiety about provision is a pointless expenditure of energy. Worry and anxiety, and listen, I'm speaking from my own experience here, uh, you know, I'm not talking down to anyone, but worry takes a lot of energy. It just does. It's exhausting. But not that, not just that, it's fruitless exhaustion. It's not like, you know, it was one thing to work and get something done and accomplish something and have the, something to look back on the fruits of your labor and be tired but satisfied. Worry just leaves you warning, worn out and nothing has been accomplished. You're just, you know, done. An old revivalist preacher named Vance Havner once said, worry like a rocking chair will give you something to do, but it won't get you anywhere. And again, it's easy to hear this and acknowledge this in our heads, you know, like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. It's another thing to not be able to worry when there's a crisis of provision of some kind. But knowing that Jesus has said this, knowing that he said this to us, that he's actually making promises to us in this text, can then make this an issue of prayer on our part. And if you're like me, someone who struggles with this, then this is what we do. This is, this is something that we can repeat uh, often to ourselves and before God as a prayer. Maybe while we're in that rocking chair of worry, we can start reminding ourselves and God, God, you love me. You've promised to provide for me. I will trust you. I will trust you to take care of this. It doesn't matter if the emotions aren't following. You know, I know there's a tendency, especially within our modern world, to say, well, you know, my heart's not it and I'm not going to do it. That's faking it. Not, not necessarily. Sometimes there are things that we have to do as an act of our will and we'll trust that our emotions will catch up with us later on when they finally figure it out. But, but we'll trust God and, 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 and make that our determination, a determined act of the will. I will trust you, God, even though there may be a whole lot of other things going on. I have found in my own experiences it to be helpful just to start that as I'm not going to say mantra, but just to start that as a regular pattern. 
to pray that and repeat that. God, I trust you. You promised to provide. You promised to take care. It may not look like what I thought, but that doesn't matter. I'm going to trust you. I, I don't want to worry. All right. Does that make sense? You hear, okay. So we'll keep going here. Verse 29. And he says, don't be concerned about what to eat and what to drink. Don't worry about such things. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers all over the world. But your father already knows your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else, and he'll give you everything you need. So don't be afraid, little flock, for it gives your father great happiness to give you the kingdom. So here, here's the contrast that he's been leading to. The broken world is fueled by anxiety and fear over temporal provisions. And the antidote, he says, is to seek the kingdom of God. That is to seek those things that have eternal value. That's the stuff to expend our energy on. And I think that it means that, that a trust in God's benevolence and, and his care for us will properly begin to reshape our priorities and our values. If we will trust him, it actually begins to reshape what it is that, that takes priority in our lives. Jesus says that worry just mimics the patterns of this broken world. Anxiety over what resources we have or what we don't have. You know, sometimes we're going to worry even when we have it in our hands because our worry is, is that we're going to lose it, right? So we'll stay up all night wondering when that's going to be gone. And to qualify, you know, we know there's a balance in all these things, right? You know, we make these statements like this and I, you know, somebody walks away, you know, just saying, well, you know, oh, I'll just quit my job now then. So it's not, listen, so everything's in balance. Paul says in Second Thessalonians 3.10, those unwilling to work will not get to eat. So everything has to be held in balance. This is not Jesus telling us, you know, to be unemployed. We're not supposed to just walk around with our mouths open, hoping God drops some food in there at some point. There's too many seagulls around here for that. But, you know, it means that don't make the pursuit of provision the most important thing in your life. You get that? Don't make the pursuit of these temporal provisions the most all-encompassing important thing in life. To seek God's kingdom means to live as his representatives, as, as members of his household, as citizens of, of his community. We're to conduct ourselves in the best interests of our eternal home and kingdom. So it means pursuing a, a, a love for others, even the unlovable. It means to be peacemakers, to care for the poor and the marginalized, to do good and not evil. Uh, the Apostle Paul also wrote in Romans fourteen seventeen, the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink. And I love the way he describes this, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That is the kingdom of God. That is pursuit of the kingdom of God. Jesus switches to such endearing terminology in this section, reminding us of God's parental care. This is not an abstract God far off in the distance somewhere that, you know, is not paying attention. He brings it in into this sense of intimacy, a parental caring God. He knows our needs like any good parent would. Whereas little flock acknowledging, you know, God's tender heart towards us. That Even that terminology is so endearing towards us, telling us that it gives God great happiness 
to provide for us. I'm, you know, as a dad that raised my kids and even now as a grandparent, I, you know the happiness that you have when you've provided something that takes care of your children, that makes them happy, that, that you know, there's, there's something, it's ineffable. You can't even, you put that into an expression of what that is. That is what God feels in providing for us. That's an amazing thing. Yeah, but he's talking about the good Christians of the world. No, he's not because they don't exist. He's talking about us. He's talking about us in this. It gives him great happiness, he said, to provide us with that goodness, that peace, and that joy in the Holy Spirit. Just imagine a life like that. Goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. I feel like that's what everybody in the world is looking for. There's some, you know, sense of being able to be a decent human being and, and to have peace about who we are and how we're living and, and to have joy in the middle of all of that. Who wouldn't want that? That's the Father's great happiness to give us that. Trusting in that benevolent care is going to reshape our values. It's going to shape us into different people with different pursuits and priorities in life. And then he elaborates that on this last section here, verse 33. Take a deep breath. Sell your possessions and give to those in need. This will store up treasure for you in heaven. And the purses of heaven never get old or develop holes. Your treasures will be safe. No thief can steal it. No moth can destroy it. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. So basically he's saying here that if we don't need to worry about the provisions in life, we can be generous with the provisions that God has entrusted us with. And then this goes back to the discussion that Janelle and I had last week as we were looking at the parable of the the rich fool. And, you know, Janelle, remember, had been inspired to look at her, her paycheck and not wonder how much God needs from this, how much of this does God want, but to see it all as God's and consider how much she needed to live on and be generous with the rest. You know, it's not, it's, look, this doesn't come naturally to us. I'm not trying to say that, you know, if we can all be like Janelle, I'm just saying that it doesn't come naturally to us to, to do this sort of thing. I heard a story from way back in the Depression days, but there was a guy that, you know, was going along and he started praying. He just said, God, I'm hungry. I haven't eaten days. I'm so hungry. He would just provide something for me. And he was walking along and he looked down and there was two silver dollars on the ground right in front of him. And he was so excited. He picked them up and he said, God, you did it. You gave me this and I'm going to give one of them to you and I'll only keep one of them. And he's going along. He's so happy. He tripped over a little stone in the road and one of the silver dollars went out of his hand and rolled down into the gutter, into the sewer. And he cried out, oh God, there went your silver dollar. point on all of these things and the point that Jesus has been getting across in these last two sections is to to refocus our understanding of possession altogether. And, And Jesus is letting us know that our possessions do play a role in this, but investing in and caring for people is what's going to radiate God's love into this world. The use of our possessions in a way that fulfills the kingdom purposes for it is going to radiate God's love into the world. How we use our resources communicates our values. And if we're investing in temporal possessions, in, in, in all these things that are going to either get stolen or rust or eaten up by moths, our testimony is that we care about things. 
But if we invest and care for people, we're radiating a divine love for others. We're revealing God's heart for the human race. God's kingdom is about people. Never forget that. That's, that's where our investments and resources are nobly used, especially with those who have needs to be met. Now listen, here's the thing. I would say pretty much across the board, almost every commentary that I've read and every sermon that I've heard on this text specifically has a place in it where it's qualified. That Jesus, when he said, sell your possession, he doesn't mean literally go out and sell all your possessions. And, you know, it's not a blanket command. And they go through and they point out, there's plenty of people in the Bible that didn't sell everything they had. And Zacchaeus, when he met Jesus, only gave away half of his possessions. And Jesus was cool with that. So it's not, you know, it's not that. It's not a blanket command. It's about our attitudinal relationship to possessions. I agree with that. Sell or keep. What matters is, is that we don't see it as ours to control for our own selfish interests, right? But I am going to say the fact that this needs to be so heavily qualified should actually tell us something about where our treasure is in the culture or even in the church. And I am not, you know, I'm pointing at all of us. I'm just saying this is the stew we're in. Because what if this was a blanket statement? What if it was? What are we going to do? Are you just like, what, you sell every, oh, well, this was fun and all, but yeah, I got to go. We'd be like the rich young ruler, walk away because he had many possessions. That's too high of a price to follow Jesus. Listen, I don't think it is a blanket command. But the fact that we hiccup when we read that, that's a pretty good x-ray of our hearts. And I'm, as I said, I am not talking to you. I am talking to us. I am talking to 21st century American Christianity. Where our treasure is, that's where our hearts have been tethered. So it might be a good idea to rummage around in that treasure box, pull items out one by one and consider, do I, do I own this or does God own this? And if Jesus asked me to just give this away, what would I do? Would I rationalize it? Would I go through all that? Well, Jesus isn't going to ask me to give that away. That's crazy. No, I'm sure I made that up. Would we give it away and find comfort in the thought, well, I can replace it pretty easily. I got enough. Or could I just let go of this and walk away, not looking back, but looking up and trusting that God in his love and care for me will provide what I need and find the greatest satisfaction in his love for me. So I'm not a guy who buys expensive clothes. Like, I just am not. I'm a pretty simple dude. And even shoes. It's, I don't spend a lot of money on shoes. I probably should. My feet have suffered for it, I'm pretty sure. But, but I just, you know, I, I, I just don't. But one time I did. I spent, to me, what seemed like a lot of money. I spent $65 on a pair of shoes. And I know there are people thinking, that's inexpensive shoes. But either way, it was expensive to me. It was a big deal to me. 
And I'll tell you, I really enjoyed those shoes. They were Sperry's. They fit. They were probably one of the most comfortable fitting shoes I've had in a while. They looked nice. I was so pleased with those shoes. I was a happy man with those shoes. Uh, and the very first Sunday morning that I wore them here, um, before the service started, a guy who appeared to be without a home came, came up to me and, and, and I greeted him and said hello. And he just started in. He goes, man, I am so tired and, and my feet are killing me. And I got so far to go. And this pavement is so hot. It's blistering up my feet. And I looked down and I saw that he was only wearing a pair of old socks and they were beat up and there was a big hole on, on one part of it. But also when I realized what he had on his feet, I also realized that his feet were pretty much the same size as mine. And I felt this inward tug to give my shoes to him. And I did. And listen, it so- no, 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 no. It sounds like I'm a hero of this story, right? I can assure you I am not. Because there was a, there, the battle that took place in my mind and I realized in my heart between the time that I realized that his shoes, those shoes might fit him, uh, you know, it was, it was big. Yeah, I had alarm bells going off like that at that moment. <laughs> First, I was thinking, well, I can't give him my shoes. I, I don't have socks. I'm, I'll be barefoot. I got to preach in just a few minutes. What are people going to think? It's going to be a detention thing. Everybody's going to be like, oh, what are you doing? I can't do that. And then, and then it was, you know, beyond that, I was just like, but I just got these shoes and, and they were expensive to me. And I may not be able to get a replacement pair for those. And not only that, what's Robbie going to think about this? Cause she's a bookkeeper and she doesn't like it when we have to put things in the loss column uh, on that sort of thing. And so I started rationalizing and I was working through this and I'm telling you, this is split second stuff, but I'm going through and I'm thinking, well, you know what? He'd really be better off with a pair of flip-flops. So I could just give him the money for that. Go down to Dollar General. He's got exactly what he needs, but I couldn't shake the thought that those shoes weren't mine anymore. They were his. And so I offered them to him and he pulled his socks off and he slipped them on his feet and they fit perfectly. And he looked at me and said, finally, <laughs> these are great. And he walked off. <laughs> so I preached barefoot and nobody cared. It was no big deal. But I came away wanting to learn from that, right? I want to be someone who wouldn't ever value shoes over a human life. I want to be someone who would never value anything over a human life, a human being created in the image of God. And I'm not saying that I am the person who's got that figured out now, but it was insightful for me. And it gets to what Jesus is talking about here. What do we treasure? You know what's really interesting? I've told this story once before, so you may know. But what's really interesting is, is that the next day, I had to come up here to the Eastgate building, and I walked over to the office, and lo and behold, those shoes were sitting neatly side by side, sitting right in front of the office door. Uh, and <laughs> I didn't know what to make of that. Uh, you know, I, I, they didn't actually look any worse for wear at all. I got a strange foot fungus after. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I fumigated them well. But I have no idea what happened on that. It, 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 Maybe that he was someone who came off his meds for a little bit, and then when he came to himself, he was able to come and return those shoes. Paul says sometimes we entertain angels unaware. I have no idea. Either way, it was a lesson that I'm still learning. It's a lesson I probably always will be learning. 
to identify what treasure is and hang on to that. So let's take up this challenge from Jesus. Let's turn our worries and anxieties about provision over to God, the God who loves us, and trust in that benevolent care and allow that loving care to reshape our values so that we are people who show off the generous love of God to a world that is in such desperate need of that. Right on? All right, very cool. Why don't you stand up with me, please, if you will. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, it's not always, I mean, it is not always easy to read what you say and, and hear it. But as we present ourselves before your word, I pray that you by your spirit will do that deep work in our hearts so that we can take this to heart and it begins to reshape us. Father, each one of us, we came in here today in various states of distress or worry just because of the world that we live in. Some of us here this morning may be here concerned about the provisions that we have or don't have. Holy Spirit, I invite you to come and begin ministering to the hearts of your people and help us, Lord, draw us up into a transcendent life to leave these worries where they belong, down here in the earth. And help us, Father, to embrace your loving care for us Help us, Father, to take that deep breath of faith. You're in control. You love me. You will bring me through this. Help us, Father, to be a people who can trust that so that then we can be a people who are generous beyond belief. I pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.